This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It was a much different, but no less meaningful, Remembrance Day this year. Prior to November 11th, an Angus Reid poll found fewer than three in ten Canadians would attend a Remembrance Day ceremony, in accordance with what authorities asked of us to reduce the spread of COVID-19. The results also indicated that virtual attendance— or alternative forms of commemoration are no substitute for the ability to attend a ceremony in person. Our collective memory of World War II is fading. As we mark the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, more than a quarter of Canadians say they never learned about it in school, and a third say they were not taught about World War I. With this in mind, Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday, Remembrance Day, by Dr. Jeffrey Hayes, Associate Professor of History at the University of Waterloo, along with World War II veteran Jim Parks, who took part in the Allied invasion of Juneau Beach on D-Day. Going in, it was kind of rough. It's, uh, uh, it's, you had a strong wind coming in, and a few of the boys got seasick. Our, our boat hit a mine, and... Uh, they dropped us off, and with the, the water was too deep, and our, our carrier sank, and so uh, we had to make make it make the shore by swimming in. And I got sideswiped by a landing craft coming in, and I swallowed a lot of water. And I uh, gradually got to the beach, and I, I plopped down beside the, the corporal corporal Scaife, who'd been uh, with Charlie Company, and he'd been mortally wounded. So since I had no equipment, I I took his sten gun and I. I rolled them over and t- took a small pack and, uh, and I made my way to the, uh, the sand dune and the pillbox. And it was kind of quiet that first day, except for snipers. We made our way to a little village called Puteau. And that's where the, that's where things really got hot because on the, by the, this time it was the 8th of June and the, um, the Germans, uh, they launched a counterattack with the, uh, which a 12th SS tank division, which is mainly Hitler youth. So that was our opposition. They infiltrated all over. First thing you know, they're in the uh, in the areas all around us, and uh, we had to make our own way. And uh, I ended up with a, another corporal from Charlie Company, and we ended up going along this bush. We were told to neutralize the bush by uh, by uh, firing our, our, our automatic weapons to neutralize it. And it's a good thing we were sent that way because right after we, within a minute after we left the uh, the company, that's when the um, the main force hit that Puteau, village of Puteau, and we lost quite a few people. We lost quite a few on the beach, about 159, and we lost another over 200 plus a bunch a bunch were captured, which is about 200 men by that time. Uh, that, that was the second day we lost that over three, over 200 on the beach, too. Terrible. Um, Dr. Hayes, this is a, obviously a very a vivid memory. It, it comes as our collective memory is fading. 
Mr. Parks here is is a, a rare, uh, a wonderful resource, isn't he? I mean, absolutely. Uh, we don't have too many veterans anymore, let alone veterans that landed at Juno Beach. So his uh, his accounts of of landing, if if your listeners are familiar with. Juno Beach. They, some of them might have been to Juno Beach Center, and, and Mr. Parks landed just about at the kind of front door of the Juno Beach Center in a little village called Corsol. So everything he's describing, boy, oh boy, the intensity of that day and the days following. Um, those are those are pretty uh, amazing to hear from from this gentleman because, uh, as I say, there aren't a lot of people left from from that time. I was surprised in that Angus Reid poll that only 2% two of, of the people who responded knew that the biggest loss of life was in the Second World War. And I think uh, something that's uh, very significant for our time now, the second was the 1918 pandemic. It's it's amazing, you know, on a day like Remembrance Day to be able to, to listen to Mr. Parks and to talk about his recollections, which are so rare, but... I, I try to emphasize to my students that, that in so many ways, the First and Second World Wars are the most important things that Canadians have ever done. And 100,000 dead over two world wars, so many others lost in Korean peacekeeping in Af- Afghanistan. So it is a day to reflect a little bit on that and, and perhaps to deal with those large numbers. It's hard, I think, for a new generation, new generations of people to... Um, to deal with that, we're we're in a new Canada with uh, so many uh, new Canadians and uh, people whose families, perhaps, um, well, perhaps were part of the countries where Canadians fought seventy five years ago. So it's a it's a constant challenge, I suppose, but it's a great opportunity. We've got so many great resources that uh, we've developed over the years now to be able to talk with veterans, to be able to uh, understand something about the experience. So it's it's a fun opportunity, I suppose, as we move forward to try to teach new generations about what Canadians have done over this time. Dr. Jeffrey Hayes, Associate Professor of History at the University of Waterloo, and before him, World War II veteran Jim Parks, who took part in the Allied invasion of Juneau Beach on D-Day. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We're about five weeks from the official start of winter, which seems hard to believe after all those warm November days we experienced not that long ago. But with winter comes snow and snow clearing, which is more important than ever, especially for people who are older or have mobility issues and rely on using sidewalks. There is an equitable snow cleaning service in the city of Toronto. In what was old Toronto, parts of East York and York, property owners must clear sidewalks in front of their homes. In other parts of the city, sidewalk snow clearing is a service provided by the city. Councillor Josh Matlow put forward a proposal that would see the city clear upwards of 1,000 kilometres of sidewalks in old Toronto, East York and York. It was voted down by members of City Council's Infrastructure and Environment Committee. 
Now, there was a pilot project last year which saw smaller machines clear sidewalks in the downtown core. But Toronto's Director of Transportation, Barbara Gray, said the program did not get a fair trial last winter because there were too few heavy snowfalls by the time the machines were operational. Joining Libby on Wednesday to discuss, John Plumador, director and member of the board of the Deer Park Residents Group, Councillor Stephen Holliday, who represents Ward 2 Etobicoke Centre, and Councillor Josh Matlow in Ward 12 Toronto St. Paul's. This year, this pandemic winter, more than ever, will see us uh, find ourselves in a situation where we're not going to be able to go to theatres or the cinema or, 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 or most places we would normally go during the winter. And walking is going to be the way that we get around for both uh, physical and mental health. And uh, I think it's incredibly important that everyone in this city, in every neighborhood, has uh, their, uh, their sidewalks safe and accessible for all. And by the way, if you do it for seniors, you also benefit, whether it be a middle-aged person in a wheelchair or parents trying to push a stroller uh, down the road and often find themselves going into a live lane of traffic to get around uh, a bank of snow that has not been cleared because we have a dearth of enforcement in this city. And uh, there's far too often stretches, entire blocks sometimes, that aren't cleared in the core of our city. Okay. Uh, Councillor Holliday, why are you against this? I, look, I, I always enjoy listening to Councillor Matlow talk, and I, I know that uh, Councillor is uh, advocating for the residents of his ward. And from a political lens, I, I, I don't blame him. But my job as a, as a counterbalance on, on city council is to uh, understand the costs of doing these type of projects and understanding that we only have so many resources that we need to work with, that we can work with. The tax base is only so large, we can only increase taxes so much. And so you have to use that money as wisely as possible. So about um, 17 or 18 percent of the city does not benefit from sidewalk clearing, and that's because the sidewalks are so difficult to clear there. And the cost of doing that would become astronomical. We're talking about $90 million is the city's winter maintenance program. I don't know how many millions it will take to do the the final increment or the last piece, but you can bet that it's a lot. I reject this argument of equity, and I want to, I'm going to get the tape for this because I'm going to remember it, Um, but I want to make sure that we know that the city isn't equal. I don't even have a sidewalk on my street, so I have to wait for the first car to go by in the morning in order to walk the bus walk to the bus or take my kids to the school bus. Um, there are places in my ward that don't even have storm sewers, and there's people on septic systems. So we can't pretend that the city is equal. There are differences, and so that's the result. that results in differences in services. Let's bring in John Plumador. So what is your view of this? Our view is that, uh, this, let's be honest and frank, that this is a safety and health issue. Uh, people are falling on our sidewalks and injuring themselves, and some people are even dying of heart attacks because uh, of shoveling snow. In a recent research, it showed that 20 centimeters of snow increases hospitalization by 16% and uh, 34% dying from a heart attack. This was a research done here in Ontario. Uh, the pilot project uh, that's presently in place is I see it as a roadblock and a delaying tactic. Transportation services already have accumulated experience and expertise in mechanically plowing older streets. Other cities do it, like Montreal and Ottawa, where they use narrow blade snow plows, 
snow blowers, snow melting equipment, and the protocol that prohibits on-street parking when snow plowing is undertake, underway. It's just in, unjust, uh, and, and, and again, people are ignoring the health and safety issue and the litigation that the city pays between 6 and $7 million from people falling on the streets and injuring That's a very good point. John Plumador, director and member of the board of the Deer Park Residents Group, Councillor Stephen Holliday, who represents Ward 2, Etobicoke Centre, and Councillor Josh Matlow, Ward 12, Toronto St. Paul's. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, we're starting to see the devastating effects of the second wave of COVID-19 in Ontario nursing homes. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's like watching a deadly crash in slow motion. We knew a second wave of COVID-19 was on the way and over many months have heard many promises from Premier Doug Ford and his long-term care minister about how the government and the LTC sector were going to prevent a repeat of last spring's tragedy in our nursing homes. And yet here we are with the death toll mounting The tragedy that's unfolding at the Kennedy Lodge Long-Term Care Home in Scarborough is a result of the second wave of COVID-19. As of late last week, 29 residents of the nursing home operated by Rivera at Kennedy and Ellesmere have died since a COVID-19 outbreak was declared last month. In all, at least 92 residents and 35 employees of Kennedy Lodge have tested positive since October 2nd. There is another Rivera nursing home in Toronto with a large outbreak. More than half of the residents at Main Terrace Long-Term Care Home near Main Street and Kingston Road have tested positive. There have also been significant COVID-19 outbreaks in other Rivera nursing homes in Western Canada. Across Ontario, there are no fewer than 93 outbreaks of COVID-19 in long-term care homes. At the beginning of September, there were just five outbreaks. On Thursday, Libby Snymer spoke with a panel of experts about the deteriorating situation. She was joined by epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, as well as NDP, MPP, and health critic, Franz Jelena. I feel like we are failing Ontarian. Um, our public health um, know experts. They know what to do to protect us. And yet, uh, the Ford government refuses to listen to them um, if we would let our public health set the measures as to how do we protect the health of all Ontarians, including people in long-term care and in retirement homes, and then let the government uh, be there to support the businesses and to support the people who are being affected uh, by loss of income or loss of jobs through the pandemic. Let the public health expert tell us what to do to protect us and make sure the government 
um, is there to support people affected financially. But none of this is happening. Mr. Ford is pretending to be a uh, public health expert and, and making it up as he goes. Jane Medes, what had you expected to be happening now uh, versus what is actually the situation? Well, we had certainly hoped to see, uh, you know, better results in the second wave. Uh, we'd hoped that the lessons from the first wave would have been learned um, and that we would have uh, better infection uh, control in the homes. Um, I'd like to point out that the two homes that you mentioned are both older homes. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we don't know is whether, you know, how many of the four bedrooms have been flipped to two bedrooms because they were doing that through attrition, whether they were sending people to hospital, for example, when they come down with the illness, or are they keeping them in the homes where there really can't be proper infection control? You know, what's happening with staff, um, you know, because it's obviously coming in through staff. So, you know, it's really unfortunate that we didn't learn the lessons in the, in the spring um, to, to affect it in the fall. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. We're, we're waiting to hear new modeling. At the moment, we are exceeding the modeling. Why is that happening? It's happening, Lily, because uh, really there's four main drivers of this. Uh, we're in the second of them already. The first is just carelessness. We let our guard down. People thought it was almost ended, and so they took the mask off, went to bars and restaurants. That was too soon. It was very unwise. And the second thing, of course, we're coming off the patio and the park now. We're, we're getting into the basement, the bar, the restaurant, and uh, there were more bodies per cubic meter inside. And then we're faced with uh, the temperature going down, even inside, so we're going to see more spreading of the warm breath around the room, you know, before it goes down. And lastly, of course, humidity. When the furnaces come on, the air becomes drier, and that uh, the moisture around the little droplets evaporates within seconds, and we see the, the, the core, the, the nucleus of the droplet now spreading around the house. So so it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and it's certainly moving upwards in an exponential fashion right now. You know, what's next? The, the government has to step aside and let the public health expert uh, make the decision as to what needs to be done to keep us safe. Once the public health tells us what needs to be done to keep us safe, if it has an impact on business, if it has an impact on workers, then the government comes in with support because those businesses have done nothing wrong. They're not being closed because they were bad. They're being closed because of the pandemic. The government has a role to play to make sure that those business and workers make it through the pandemic. But it is not up to a politician to decide good public health advice. Those have to come from public health. Then the government acts to support businesses and people. Libby's conversation on Thursday with epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, Jane Medes at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and NDP health critic, France Jelena. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's a trend that's worsening amid the pandemic. A new study published in the British Medical Journal indicates delays in cancer treatment are resulting in increased early death among patients. Researchers say by delaying a patient's cancer treatment four weeks, there is a 10% increased risk of early death. There is also the issue of overcrowded hospitals amid COVID-19 and the implication this has for patients who require cancer treatment. 
On Thursday, Libby was joined by Dr. Timothy Hanna, Associate Professor of Oncology at Queen's University School of Medicine and Clinician Scientist at the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. Among the over 1.2 million people that had high-quality data that we could investigate, that with a treatment delay of four weeks, that there was a significantly increased risk of death among 13 of the 17 forms of cancer treatment that we looked at. And furthermore, what what we found was that as these delays mounted, the increase on the chance of death increased. I was assured every single time by whichever doctor or hospital I was talking to saying, you know what? The procedures that have to be done are being done. Don't worry. But those that can be postponed are being postponed. I mean, what you're finding seems to fly in the face of this. I think the one thing I would point out is that as much as the the cancer community uh, believed that delay was not a good thing, we we didn't have rigorous and comprehensive estimates of of just exactly how uh, significant the impact on, on delay on outcomes could be. Let me just read something from your report that I think is is very sobering. Researchers estimated that a delay in surgery of 12 weeks for all patients with breast cancer during COVID-19 lockdowns and their aftermath, for example, would over the course of a year lead to, and I'll just use the Canada number, 700 excess deaths in Canada. That means 700 people, 700 mothers, wives, sisters, friends of people will die who would have otherwise lived. Yeah, yeah. It, the results are, are certainly very sobering. I, I would just point out for that the, the example that we, we used um, assumes a 12-week delay for all women over the course of a year for every, everyone in Canada. So th- this, this is a... Um, you know, uh, would would model a very a very serious situation in Canada. The the exact numbers of uh, of women who are exposed to delay um, in each province is something that would need to be put together to to provide uh, an estimate of of where things are at or where they could be. But 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 certainly, even if we're talking about far less than that, it, it's it's still concerning, and our results point to the need. To minimize healthcare system-related delay for these various forms of cancer treatment that we've found as much as we possibly can. Dr. Hanna, um, yeah. what do you think that going forward, what do you think the situation will be? Are we going to see more mm-hmm. rationing of cancer care because uh, of the second wave? I've been really impressed with what Cancer Care Ontario um, managed during the first wave. I think that we need to be vigilant going into the second wave as there are increasing pressures on the healthcare system. Our findings from uh, this BMJ study indicate that there's very good reason to be vigilant and to be careful and to make sure our patients who develop cancer wait as as short as possible. And I I do trust Cancer Care Ontario and our decision makers to keep prioritizing that. And now they have all the more reason to, to do so.
Dr. Timothy Hanna, Associate Professor of Oncology at Queen's University School of Medicine and Clinician Scientist at the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ray in Jordan, Ontario, who phoned on Remembrance Day with his memories of World War II. I was probably four and a half or five years old, and the war came at the end. My brother and I, Gary, and I built a straw dummy of Hitler. Now, the idea was that when the fire started in the middle of the street, the night of the end of the war, you were supposed to throw the dummy on. But our neighbors beat it, beat us to it. So we carried that straw dummy around town until he actually fell apart. So the, it was a lot of cheering, a lot of dancing. Um, my dad owned a shoe store in the middle of town. He put loudspeakers out in front of the store. And uh, everybody just had a great great time that day and for the days after. And and wow. both incidents uh, were very spectacular to a young kid at that time of uh, in life. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.